Star. We're sitting down with Dr. James Lambrick. You're not going to hear Steve Piter this week. He's at Midwest, so we've got uh, who I refer to as not Steve Piter here. This is my <laughs> my colleague Daniel Moore here at Neighborville North High School. Introduce yourself, Dan. Hi, I'm Dan. <laughs> and also the what new owner of Daniel Moore Music. So uh, nice. Yeah, we had a we had a fun day today. We had Dr. Lambert come out and work with our our wind symphony, our symphonic wind ensemble. And uh, Dr. Lambert, we brought you out for a really big question. Have you seen Star Wars yet? No. And I will, but I'll probably see it more than once too. But no, not with Midwest going on. Well, end of episode. Thanks, guys, for listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so no, yeah, and we'll call this like a big special Midwest Clinic uh, edition here. But uh, Dr. Lambert, why don't you tell us um, just a little bit about yourself, what you do at, at Augustana currently, and maybe how you got to that position. Sure. Uh, my life history and a synopsis here, sure. right? Well, I, as I was telling the bands, too, I mean, music has been part of my life for a long, long time. My dad was a high school band director, so he was my high school band director, too. So... I've been surrounded by music. He was a trombonist and a band director. Like I said, my mom was a saxophonist and piano and organ uh, player and teacher. And so I was just immersed in music. And sometimes that works for kids. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, genetically, sometimes, you know, people aren't disposed to be musicians. And But it was for me. And I knew I enjoyed it. But I liked a lot of things. I was also an athlete in high school. And I did a lot of things with uh, I was in theater, I was in plays, I was in the debate team, I was in forensics. I did just, you name it. But back in those days, you could do those kinds of yeah, things. It's what harder. high school? What town was that? Uh, Whittle High School, actually, in Greenfield, Wisconsin. It was one of the suburbs of Milwaukee. In fact, I was, I was born out in the country. My dad was a band director in a small town called Mayville, Wisconsin. That's where I was actually born. It was out by Hork and Marsh. But uh, when I was only two then, he got the job as the founding band director at Whittle. It was the first year that they were coming in. It was almost like Jim Stombrace, I think, here, right? Uh, he was the first band director at North. No, he was second or third, actually. Really? There were, there were others before. I don't know the history. I didn't know that. But anyway, so my dad was my high school band director. But at a very early age, my parents always steeped us in the arts. And... Uh, he would always take us to concerts. I remember, for instance, uh, the Chicago Symphony always did one concert a month in Milwaukee. They don't do this anymore. But on a Monday night, they would play a subscription concert in Milwaukee at Eline Hall. And as a 10-year-old, when you're, I was of age, my dad started taking me to hear Chicago Symphony. I heard more Chicago Symphony concerts in Milwaukee than Milwaukee Symphony concerts <laughs> in Milwaukee. And so, I, of course, I, I wanted to become a brass player. And it, it's one of the things I showed a, 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 an affinity for trumpet because all of my family were low brass players. My older brother, Tom, was a trombonist and euphonium player. My dad was a trombone player. And then my younger brother wanted to go to the trombone as well. And I said, I don't want to be like everybody else. So I said, well, I don't want to play trumpet. So besides trumpet's more fun, it's, you know, plays melody and all that kind of stuff. So I said, I want to be a trumpet player. So I fell in love with Chicago Symphony Sound and Bud Herseth and all that kind of stuff. And it just kept going this way where, you know, I was going to everything. I have a picture in my office from 1962 of the Midwest Clinic. And my dad was there and he would always take uh, me to hear bands on the final day, like the Saturday and so on a Saturday, we would all come down from Milwaukee. My mom would take the train down with us and... I was. I have a photograph of me sitting on my dad's lap in 1962, listening to Harry Beejan and his high school band from Cast Tech, Detroit. 
playing. And I don't have any rem- memory of this, but I was four years old in 1962. Wow. And there I am. So my dad was really influential in getting me started in music and so on. I went to school, you know, Whitewater. I was an all-stater in high school, and I went to school Whitewater, trumpet performance. Thought I wanted to be an orchestral player, and I uh, went to Indiana University. But there I met Ray Kramer, and uh, I was, as I told the wind ensemble here, the, the top band, I was uh, playing a concert, and I did a great job. It was a wonderful concert, and the day after the concert, Ray looked at me, and he says, you know what? You're not a trumpet player. You're a band director. You need to seriously consider you know, not trying to push this and become a, an orchestral trumpet player. He knew that it's just brutally impossible to get an orchestral job, whereas he said, your real skill level is in conducting and teaching. And, of course, I come by that from my parents. They're all teachers. And I'm actually a fourth-generation teacher. Hmm. So it's it's one of those things. It's just it's the family business, if you will. <laughs> so it, that, it – and then I – Got a doctorate in Indiana, and I taught for three years in a college in Michigan, a small college. Got my feet wet and really cut my teeth because you have to teach everything sometimes, and I did. I taught all of almost the entire department instrumentally, and uh, we even had a small little marching band. So I had to do marching band for three years at a small college, which was brutal. 35 pieces, you know. And they played. It was good instrumentation. They played really well as long as it was 70 degrees and no wind. <laughs> you know? But once the weather got bad, it was horrible. Went to Augustana in 1988, and I haven't looked back. And I've been there 28 years now. This is my 28th uh-huh. year at Augustana. I was director of bands. And it's a great little program. Uh, really excellent students come to Augustana. And it, it, you can really do some things. And we're doing all the top wind literature that all the major ensembles. I mentioned to the groups that were playing, for instance, John Mackey's Wine Dark Sea Symphony that he wrote just a year and a half ago. It's premiered by the University of Texas. And uh, so it's, it's a great job, and I've really enjoyed it. And then secondarily now, in, in the last six years, I've been appointed one of the guest conductors at Mushishino Academy in Tokyo, and that's one of their top wind ensemble programs. And that's just amazing, just incredible. And it's a rotation where you're part part of a five-person rotation of conductors that go in and guest conduct. And the the whole school of music at Mushishino is founded on interaction between different cultures, especially European and American cultures with Japan. And so they bring in lots of European and American teachers to teach over there. What's the age group? Uh, it's all. It's mostly undergrad. The wind ensemble is entirely undergrad. They're all, and the the wind ensemble that you conduct is all juniors and seniors. So twenty one and twenty twenty and twenty one year olds, some twenty two year olds, depending on how their their age breaks down for years. Uh, but anyway, it, it's a, just a fantastic ensemble, just really amazing. And I'll probably share some of the the things that they do and how they do it because I've brought those back with me, and it's really helped my program and how I view my program and the kinds of things we're doing at Augustana, and I've also uh, spoken with other people that have changed the way they teach here in the United States as well to try and mimic it as well. Can I ask about Ray Kramer real quick? Because uh, with with all due respect, whenever I think about some of these old school band directors and legends, you you hear the great things, and then you also hear that sometimes they were a little 
rough. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and I have heard exactly the opposite about Ray Kramer. Absolutely. I have heard from some people that he is the nicest guy you'll ever Absolutely. meet, and he's never had a bad word about anyone. No, and he's you know he's a really strong Christian person for one thing. So his faith is really important to him. But and he and his wife, but they're role models for a lot of students, and they they really set you up in this profession to be balanced, so that you don't get out of control in terms of what you're trying to do. So you go into this profession realizing, A, we're not going to make a lot of money. B, uh, we get really competitive with ourselves and with each other sometimes in terms of who's the best at anything, you know, and I'm a trumpet player. There's no one more competitive than trumpet players. And so, you There's know, only he, three in this room. Well, yeah, exactly. I can play higher than all you guys. Well, play. It, it's like, but he, he was a trombonist. <laughs> And I remember sitting in his wind ensemble, and he would always, you know, he was the harshest on the trumpet section because he wanted us, not looking back on it, it was easy. He was trying to get us to understand that we have to be part of this ensemble instead of, like, always thinking that, hey, we're all that all the time. Sure. But, you know, it, it, there's a balance point. He was really excellent at teaching us not only to be fantastic musicians, but how to do things the right way for the right reason. And that, I think, is missing in some people's lives. And some of the, the old school guys were just mean and just really brutal about how they taught just because they, they were afraid it was going to make them look bad. So they were doing things for the wrong reason the wrong way. And so Ray has never been that. You know, he could lose his temper. We, in fact, we could always set our watches on when he was going to lose his temper with us, based on how close to a concert it was. You know, <laughs> but he would do it once just to make sure that we were paying attention. You know, you could feel it building. We'd start to get tired on something, or it might be in the middle of you know midterms, exams, or something. You know, we had a concert in two weeks. You know, and we weren't working maybe as hard as he thought we should be. And and now that we're all teachers in this room, we know exactly what that's like with our own students at any level whether it's junior high high school or collegiate it doesn't make any difference you know the the ebbs and flows of how their concentration and energy level works depending on who they are and where they are throughout the school year but uh, he would lose his temper once and he was guaranteed if he got mad at us in rehearsal a he would never use ever profanity and b he would get really intense just to get our attention and he would always that same rehearsal crack a joke to break the ice, to just to let us know that he still loved us and it, it was just to, to get our attention. And I find myself doing the exact same things. I just, I lost my cool a little bit on Monday of this week because this week is a short week for us at Augustana because I can only rehearse twice. And then I had to come to Midwest because it's very important for most of us to get as much of out of Midwest Clinic as we can because it's the, the most incredible uh, conference of its kind in the world. And if you need to see people or learn things, this is the place to be. So we only had two rehearsals and I felt like we were tired on Monday and I, I found myself getting shorter and quieter. I, I express anger by getting quieter, actually. Oh, that's the worst. My um, mom would do that. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, it gets their attention or I'll just sit there and I'll... I'll like flip the page really aggressively, you know, after a moment of silence. And believe me, <laughs> I don't have to say a word. They know what's coming, you know, and they, they just learn to, to snap together. And so I, I had a wonderful rehearsal then on Tuesday, you know, but that's the way Ray taught. And he was that way at trying to get the most out of people, but doing it for the right reasons. And it, at the concert last night with the Japanese high school band, uh, the board of uh, directors at Midwest Clinic now has a new recognition for all retired board members, and they re recognize all the retired board members. And so Ray's turn was last night. And it was an instantaneous standing ovation. 
for Ray because that people understand who he is and what he is and why he does what he does and how he does what he does. And it was quite different than some of the other presentations, let me just say that, that have gone on this sure. year, that were not as well received, shall we say. There's nothing like it because people really admire and respect who he is and how he does what he does. And I do want to point out that he started out at Western Illinois University. Exactly. For undergrad. <laughs> that's important that I let well, people know that. Exactly. And not only that, but uh, and then he went to Iowa and so on, and just to keep it fair and honest among everybody. I'm not an Iowa grad, so it's okay. <laughs> they think they play football now or something. I don't know. Oh, but anyway, the... Uh, uh, but, you know, he was just a farm boy in western Illinois. He wasn't thinking about going to school. He didn't even, he tells the story about how his, his first high school or his first band director convinced him he was ready to quit trombone, fifth grade, and all that stuff. And so the, the whole idea of mentoring was really important in Ray's life, which has made him one of the best mentors we've ever had in our profession. And, uh, you know, because he could have just easily fallen by the wayside. There's story after story after story I could regale your listeners to about how he's, you know, kept people in the business that have ended up being really excellent teachers, really excellent conductors, people that were going to quit. You know, there's story after story. But he was the same way. So he feels he's passing it forward, you know, with his students and other people, making sure that you're doing things the right way for the right reasons. But he also is, has that innate ability that we all hope to have as teachers, that we can see our students and our potential in our students, even when they can't see it. Thus, when he looked at me, he says, you know, look, you're playing principal trumpet in my wind ensemble. You played a, a monster concert last night. Great work. Oh, by the way, you're a director. You're a conductor. You're a band director. You're not a trumpet player, per se. Yeah, you played trumpet really well, but your true gifts have got to be in band directing. So I want you to think about going that direction. That's what teachers do. And that's what mentor teachers do. They see that. So did you feel that, you know... Early on, when you wanted to be, you know, orchestral trumpet player, did you feel that you had the temperament for that type of life? And Ray kind of saw that no, really, you needed to be a little more. Well, I think it was more broad. I don't think he felt like I couldn't make it. I probably could have made some mid-level orchestra eventually at some point, you know. And and it, you know, he. (laughs) It's funny because I mentioned him a couple years ago. I said, you know, had I not gone this path, I mean. I thought I was the next Bud Harset, so I was just waiting to take over in Chicago Symphony, this brass sound that I love so much. You know, like yeah. me and every other trumpet player that wanted to be an orchestral player in the world wanted that job, right? Well, he didn't retire until he was like in his 80s. You know, I would have waited till I was in my 40s to even try to play the first audition. And it's a brutal job. I mean, Chris Martin is amazing in doing that job really well. But it took forever to find Chris Martin to fill those shoes. You know, it's such a tough thing, right? But uh, So I don't think it was that per se as much as it was that, you know, you need to be a band director. And it's, it's interesting because my dad always thought that one of us was going to be uh, a band director and take over the family business and be a high school band director. And Ray actually mentioned that to me. He says, you know, Jim, when I was in college at university, I should say in grad school with him, he says, you'd make a really good high school band director. And I always fought him on that. And I said, I don't want to be a high school band director. I can't do that. I see what you guys do every day. And I'm going, this is such hard work. It's amazing the work that you guys do as quality high school band directors. And I saw what my dad went through and I said, I can't do that. I'm not, 
I don't have the temperament. I see how brutal it is working with, you know, administrations and parents and all the issues and with kids that aren't adults and all the things that go with this. And I'm going, I don't want to do that. I, I would rather make music and so on and so forth. But he keeps telling me this all the time. And it's, it's kind of funny because here I am teaching at the undergraduate level and it's not like a university program because I don't have graduate students, right? I teach undergrads and, and a half or so, or maybe even more than half, are non-music majors at Augustana. And they're fabulous students and fabulous kids and they play really well. And they're, they're in my ensemble, they work really hard, they have great attitudes, but quite frankly, I'm basically just a high school band director, but at the collegiate level. Sure. It's, here's the similarities. Kids that come to play with me stay with me. If they make the ensemble, you know, there are some people that have to wait till their sophomore, junior years to get into the ensemble, especially on certain instruments. But oftentimes kids come and they're they're that good. They're all staters and they make the ensemble openings when they're a first year student. And I get to have them for four years. That's not true at the major university level or the conservatory level. They see them one concert and then they cycle the whole nother ensemble in. So I get to know my students. I get to really get to know my students and have a personal relationship with them that a lot of university conductors never get a chance to do. So in that way, I am a high school band director. It's really interesting. So think about those students that, of course, go on into teaching or anything like that. What are you seeing in, um, let's say, not even brand new teachers, but just teachers in their first 10 years, that high school, junior high, elementary, that they really just need to either work on or shift their focus to well and it's it's kind of like the thing that uh what we're seeing the successful programs i'm seeing now in high school that feed into augustan or any other university or college program the successful programs are really stressing fundamentals and you guys are doing it here at north and and i see a lot of programs that are succeeding by going back to the basic fundamentals you know and it, it you can't ignore this there was a while there maybe 10 or 15 years where we kind of got away from it in every way I got away from it, you know, in trumpet teaching, lesson applied teaching, you know, where we weren't stressing Arvin and Clark in trumpet lessons, or we weren't stressing our scales and all those kinds of things, making sure that the students really had the background, making sure they breathed correctly, making sure they were listening correctly, making sure that, you know, mechanically they were set up, but more intellectually they were set up, they were listening, their ears were going. Um, so I think what happens is, I think depending on where they're from the first year teachers need to get back to a lot of basics as well and when they first starting when they first start out it's easy to just get into music and just say we we got a concert coming up we need to do this and not spend the time teaching the fundamentals and continuously teaching and and reinforcing fundamentals of ensemble playing i'm big on that but ray was big on that so i'm a, I'm a product of indiana sure. so I, that's what i do and uh he and fred ebbs have put together this lip benders book and i've taken it you know and it's what it's that warm-up you know it's the kinds of things you guys have your warm-up yours and i was listening to it and it's great you know you're effectively talking through how to breathe and how to make sounds and and do it correctly and to listen active listening you know and trying to change things and not just going through the motions and you have to do something and there are lots of different ways to do that right and and so i still do it i even do that in mushishino and so does ray and they they kind of look at you sometimes and it's like you really want us to warm up you know it's like we're, <laughs> we're like almost these kids go on and are professional musicians you know yeah. it's like oh no, no 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 i want you to always like i was telling the ensembles here across the hall it's like you have to practice every day to learn how to play together 
It doesn't just happen. Now, Chicago Symphony plays so well together, but they've spent decades, many of them, playing. I mean, good grief, you know, Jay Friedman in his, what, 43rd, 53rd year as principal trombone in the Chicago Symphony. I mean, when he takes a breath, kind of people know where that's going to be after 53 years, you know. So after 53 years of three or four rehearsals a day or a week and three performances a week for 53 years... You know, many people that come in and out of that brass section know what's going to happen. You know, same thing when Bud Herseth was there, when Arnold Jacobs was there, and so on. Much less the woodwind sections, much less the string sections. So they just, through sheer repetition, do these kinds of fundamental things anyway. Sure. They don't have to practice them. They just play together for decades, and they know how each other plays. We have to work on that every day. And you can't take it for granted. Every time I'm in a hurry and I don't spend as much time on the fundamentals and, and the warm-up kinds of things, even with the Augustana Symphonic Band, I pay a price. That ensemble pays a price every single time. I'm going, oh, we got to work on this technique or we got to get to this. Every single time. Or we're busy or we have a short rehearsal. Schedules change, right? You deal with that at the high school level all the time. But every time you shortchange yourself on that, you're in trouble. I mean, it always comes back to bite you. Yeah, we always seem to start the year with the best intentions. Oh, yeah. Spending half the rehearsal on fundamentals, and then by April, it's like, survival. Hey, let's just tune and, and Ray play. was telling me a story about when uh, one of the years he was at Mushishino, where the very first rehearsal, he spent like two hours just doing long tones and bland and balanced intonation things, you know, all that kind of stuff with them. And then they started to get into the music a little bit. And, uh, yeah, he forces it, but he's Ray Kramer, and he has that reputation, so he can do it. One of the years uh, I went to Mushishino, they uh, they said, no, we have uh, 150 junior high and high school band directors observing your first rehearsal. Your <laughs> first rehearsal. Observing so, or judging? Well, kind of, yeah, exactly, right? Well, and, and, you know, recruiting there is as big as anywhere else on the planet, so they wanted to, to put on a good show. So I didn't get a, a chance to do quite that much in terms of basic sure. fundamentals that first rehearsal I spent maybe 20 minutes and that was pushing it and they said no, no, no and we were doing the that was the year that we were playing the the Barnes Third Symphony you know with the group and so they said no, no we want to hear this so I had to do a couple of movements first rehearsal just reading through it and just play the Barnes Symphony for these guys to see what the ensemble sounds like the first rehearsal the whole point was what kinds of things do I talk about and do even with a great ensemble like that but then also what do they sound like What's their square one? What's their starting point on the literature? I read a, a quote online. Uh, it was a newspaper article when you were invited to go to Japan. And I think you mentioned that there was a uh, French person and a German person taking a lesson together. And they didn't speak a word to each other and still got a lot of stuff done. Yeah. So how does this go? And it's, it's part of a bigger question of like... What's Japan like What's for music? Like? Yeah, you know, exactly. and, and how does the communication go? Are you a fluent uh, Japanese speaker? <laughs> oh, I know Yeah, exactly. I know like five words. I mean, I'm, it's interesting too because language has always been a struggle for me, no matter what. I can't even speak English, <laughs> and so it's <laughs> learning another language. I learned German in high school, and that most of that's gone. I'll speak to the, some of the German teachers. I'll give them a phrase or two every now and then. Something will remind myself, and I'll pop in my head, but. 
you know, it's like, wow, Japanese is really a tough language. Chinese, all the Asian languages are really difficult in so many ways because their vowels are different. Uh, the vowel system in Japan is more Italian than anything. So I'm at a disadvantage because I didn't do French, Italian, or, or Spanish. I did German. So my vowels are all messed up. Plus, I'm from Wisconsin. My vowels are naturally messed up anyway. <laughs> and so I, I'll say something. It's really funny over there. Yeah, but ain't but it, yeah, you know, eh? you know, it, it, but I'll say something. The kids look at me and they'll say, no, sensei, it's like this. And I'll say, that's what I said. And I'll say it right back to them. And they go, no. And it's like the nuanced differences. It's worse in Chinese, actually, especially yeah. in Mandarin. It's way worse in terms of the small little colorations of the vowels can completely change the meaning. You're saying something word. completely different and you can get maybe horrifying. In, exactly. Right? You get yourself in a little <laughs> trouble. The good news at Mushishino, and I asked this right away because I said, all right, I'll spend the time and I'll do the work and I'll try to become fluent in Japanese. And some of the guest conductors over the years have done that. But they actually told me, and I hope I understood this correctly when they said it, but they said they want me to really speak slowly but to teach and to conduct in English and I said okay I can do that obviously but they said we want you to do this because our students are, have real goals of becoming musicians professional musicians many of them some of them are teachers many of them are teachers but many of them want a chance at a professional playing career and, and so if they do and if they go all over the world the international language in rehearsal is actually English. And I said, really? I didn't really believe that. I thought, you know, a French orchestra would speak French, you know, whatever. So anyway, I flipped on uh, one of their channels in Tokyo one time, and I, I there pops up uh, Gustavo Dudamel, the great conductor, right, you know, from Venezuela. And he's conducting the Vienna Philharmonic in Geneva, Switzerland. <laughs> And guess what? He's conducting and rehearsing in English. I thought you were going to say Wisconsin yeah, dialect. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but I'm going, there it is. Right? There is a Venezuelan conducting an Austrian orchestra in French-speaking Switzerland, and they're speaking English in rehearsal. I said, okay, I understand. I get what you're saying. You know, at some point, you know, I may have to, to learn more, but I don't spend quite enough time there. You go over there for three months at a time. Sure. It takes a lot more than that. And then, and now that the uh, we're, we were going through a cycle here of replacing a bunch of older guest conductors who no longer physically could go over there and do this. And so four of us are, or three of us are brand new within the last six years out of the five. Ray has been doing it since 1990. Rick Hansen's been doing it since 19, or 2000, for instance. But the rest of us are recent. I'm from uh, 2009, and then there are two other gentlemen that have just started in the last two okay. years. And so there's a four-year cycle now. So if you don't go back to Japan every four years, you're going to lose all your language. You know, you can't do that. Yeah. And, and just practicing, I have Rosetta Stone on my computer, but I mean, it's not the same. You have to immerse in something. But especially at our age, when you get older, your brain doesn't function that way. And talking about neuroscience, it's hard to learn a language at our age. You have to do it before you hit puberty. Now we know that. So if you learn languages before you get to puberty, you're going to be great. I tried learning. We, we've got the Rosetta Stone thing. And I was looking at some Japanese a year or two ago. Yeah. And like, Otokonoko, Nonoko, yeah. boy and girl. And I'm having so much trouble with yeah, this. Yeah. yeah, my six-year-old daughter just flies out. Exactly like that. What's what's this? Well, like, now that we understand what's going so, on. Well, exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's all neuroscience. Um, that's very fascinating to hear English is 
very i mean i don't think it helps the american ego to to <laughs> well, hear that it's but, not uh, it's not that per se it's just you know that they want to be successful and so wow. for right now the only common language and it's that way until chinese or something replaces it sure you know, they, they keep making sounds you know in the world about how well china china is going to become the number one economy and it, it's all economically driven more than anything else because english was the the language of business international business for many many decades especially after world mm-hmm. war ii so that's the argument that i hear but sure i don't care i mean whatever i'll speak whatever but to be honest with you in rehearsal I just use English uh, just to give them starting places and things, but then you use more Italian terminology, which they're familiar with. So you say uh, staccato or legato, and they understand completely, especially if you speak slowly. Sure. Uh, but then, m- even more importantly than that, I don't even rely on that. I sing for them all the time. Okay. You know, my voice is kind of messed up right now because I'm, you know, fighting the the winter soul, you know, sinus stuff. You know that. A lot of us do, and lack of sleep, you know, Midwest Clinic and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the uh, but I sing more in rehearsals than anything else, and that they model immediately. Sure. And, and, and they always write little notes at the end of the time when you're there, and they always comment about how much I sing and how much they like my voice. Right now, it doesn't sound very good at all, but they, <laughs> they like my singing voice because they're not used to, that's not a, a teaching technique that they use in Japan as much. Yeah. But I vocalize almost everything because it's just much more easy to convey what you want. Well, and I think even just in your voice, you've got that sing-song thing. Though. Our kids loved it. I, I would listen to you read a, a Cleveland phone book, you know. So, you've just got that that way. What, um, so, like, obviously, I know you're kind of talking a little bit of a different work ethic mm-hmm. um, out there. I mean, what about the sound? Well, the, it's evolving, and, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys, you know, listen to a lot to it, but I sure did. When Tokyo Kose and Frederick Fennell started really doing a lot of recording, you know, of course, I got right into it right away. I was always attracted. The, uh, I got to go to Japan the first time in 1984 with Ray Kramer in the IUN Ensemble, and so that's what really set me up here to being a fan of what's going on in Japan. And it was a joint ABA and JBA convention in Tokyo that we were invited to perform at. And so I've been going there a long time. And, and of course, Tokyo Kosei Wind Orchestra played at that convention. I met all those people, and Fennell was there. And I've, of course, been a fan of Fred Fennell. We all are. About what he did for us in, in the band world and how he really helped shape what's going on with what we're doing now. Uh, but anyway, the... Uh, you know in terms of you know the sound they started out you know the the older japanese sound was a much brighter sound and uh the the rap on japanese performances were that they were great technically but they didn't really understand our music and i have to be honest with you that has all changed and the high school group last night again really proves that they really play with much more of a north american sound it's a much richer darker sound they've really got this under control now they know what they're they're supposed to sound like uh so it's this blend of european sound and most mostly american sound and and schools in in japan do not hire wind ensemble conductors from europe they hire americans to come over 
You know, and, and Frederick Fennell was one of them. Alfred Reed, you know, spent a lot of time in Japan. He's so famous there. It's like any. T- I was asked to program Armenian Dances Part One last year when I was there for the summer tour. You know, so I had to go back and do Armenian Dances Part One. They love it. It's like almost like required playing for them <laughs> because Alfred Reed is so popular. But he was there conducting and helping shape and mold sure. that sound. I talked to one of the horn faculty members at at the end of the year party and he informed me he says yeah we understand this now we we understand what we're supposed to be playing like and he plays in tokyo philharmonic and all these things or you know tokyo kosei and and these guys that teach at mushishin are all professional players and they've seen this evolution of their sound and how they approach the instruments as well in their lifetime and what's happening is uh he told me he says in their opinion it takes three generations of teachers and performers to really fully understand they are now at that point and it's working and it's evidence for instance that Japanese players especially wind players are starting to vie for American orchestra positions in fact the principal trombone player in the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra where I'm from is a Japanese woman as we speak you know they're starting to come over here and play in our style of playing with our sound and win jobs. That kind of convinces me that, yes, they're there. They're ready. Uh, their technical skills, we can talk about that until the cows come home. I mean, I mean, that's what they do. And the, the thing that you know, I want to talk about today and I want to convey to the listeners probably more than anything else, and this is what I, I told the bands, and every time I do clinics, and I'm trying really hard to get my ensemble to buy into this as well, is that in Japan, they never come unprepared to a rehearsal, ever. They never show up unprepared, not able to play every note and every rhythm. That is an embarrassment to them and to their culture if they do. It's like doing the reading before a class. I mean, we have, I remember when I was a student, so many times I'd do the reading, but sometimes I wouldn't. I'd show up unprepared for whatever we we're going to talk about in the lecture that day. They don't do that ever and so the difference is when you walk into their ensembles the very first day you don't have to worry about teaching notes and rhythms like all teachers here in america i'm okay with that i teach notes and rhythms all the time and i can do it and i can do it at any level you know that can't help i'm not a a beginning band director or junior high band director but at least i can teach what the note's supposed to be and what's supposed to sound like and where to place it you know that's something that we do in america they don't do that in terms of conducting Mm -hmm. in japan so that frees you to do all the musical things and so you get to get to work right away and start making music from day one it's a really amazing experience now what are we doing in america to make that work well What I'm trying to emphasize in my ensembles is outside sectional work, where on their own, each section gets together and practices together, not individually, because it's more fun to practice this literature together. You know, you can tell somebody to go woodshed, and they should, you know, just go into the practice room and do this. But what we're trying to establish, and it's coming along nicely now, it's been true for the last two or three years, where we're starting to see more and more of my sections get together, especially the large sections, the flutes and the clarinets especially, to some extent the trumpets all really get together on a regular basis, almost once a week, 
to do sectionals, an hour-long sectional on things that we talk about in rehearsal. And I say, you know, I'll make a comment in rehearsal. You guys need to think about this. You need to work on this as a section. I don't want to take ensemble time to fix your issues on this clarinet thing or this flute thing or this trumpet thing or whatever it's going to be. And they're starting to buy into that. The more they buy into that, the better my ensemble is going to play. Because then I get to work on ensemble and music the whole time. Instead of teaching what this rhythm is or teaching what this pattern is. And that's the change. That's one way of doing it. Uh, our good friends at, at uh, St. Charles North, as soon as I came back the first time, uh, Brian Wiss asked me, he said, what's the difference? What's going on? Tell me everything about it. It was down in Peoria at the, at the Allstate Convention right in 2010, right after I did my first uh, tour of 2009 in Tokyo. And he said, okay, I'm going to think about it. And their way of doing it is to do, use smart music and to have every student that plays in any ensemble have to pass a proficiency on smart music on those pieces in order to be able to sit in ensemble rehearsal. Now, he doesn't throw people out initially. I don't want to speak for Brian because this may be slightly inaccurate, but he gives them time to work on this, and if they're not ready, they get to go to the practice room instead of playing with the rest of the ensemble but i think there's an end point to that there's that's not unlimited in terms of you know sure you get but you don't have to from day one be absolutely perfect but maybe by day three or four or something you have to get there you have to pass this proficiency in order to be in that ensemble and that's the japanese type of model every day when i conduct in tokyo at mushishino the next rehearsal i have to tell them at the previous rehearsal, what we are doing next. And the reason is so that those students are incredibly prepared on those specific pieces in those specific places. I can't just say, okay, prepare all Barnes' Third Symphony. I have to say, we're going to work on the fourth movement. We're going to work on this measure to this measure. And those kids will make sure that that is absolutely flawless for that rehearsal. But I have to tell them, you know, rehearsal in advance. And the rehearsal schedule is usually two days a week for two to three hours. And so, you know, on a Tuesday rehearsal, I'm telling them what Friday is. And on Friday, I'm telling them what Tuesday is going to be. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what. We're at about noon right now. And I know you got to get no, down. Wait, wait a minute. We Are have you? not talked about the Brewers or the Packers yet. Oh, I don't know, man. man. Oh, man. <laughs> This well, could get brutal. I mean, I, I think we just need to have a part two at some point if you're okay with us driving oh, yeah. down to Augustana because, man, this is Anytime. incredibly fascinating here. So, Anytime. Um, we thank you very much for coming out. We loved loved the work uh, that you did with the students today. Oh, they're great students. You guys are doing great work. Oh, thank we always you. have. North has always been one of those wonderful programs. But, uh, you know, if you want to look Dr. Lambrick up, he's over at Augustana College. Uh, Dave Moore, my colleague here, he's, <coughs> or Dan, sorry, Daniel, Daniel Moore. I uh, provide his music and. Uh, can look us up on www.thebandmasters.com so enjoy your midwesting for everybody and That's thank right. you very much